uh, writing it. It's still kind of rolling out on a weekly basis. Um, and so you'll see it on Facebook, or if you sign up for the email, you'll get an email notification. And so that's coming out. And the, <clears throat> the purpose for this was to help our community develop uh, a language, uh, some images to normalize discussions of sexuality. Because, as we said last week, there is a drumbeat out there that's going on on a regular basis that is motivated by one of the five social institutions. Uh, business, uh, our, uh, government, education, religion, the, the family, all of these are under tremendous amount of stress to not develop a full curriculum. The only institution that's working on a curriculum uh, is the institution that's trying to sell us stuff, and that is our economic institutions. We use sex as a marketing tool. So most of our visceral instincts around sexuality are being informed. Most of the visceral instincts for our young people are being informed by people who are not looking at the wholeness of human sexuality, but are looking exclusively at selling something. And so we talked last week about sex as a part of a five-element a human component of which eroticism is only a part and what we do as a culture is strip that part out but we're talking about the whole complement of making love love that will last a lifetime and so we want to have a language for talking about that together as a community we want to be able to integrate it into our groups and into uh, the times that we have with our kids so one of the themes in the podcast is that at this moment in history our sexual norms, <clears throat> the basic things that we all agree on about sexuality, have been thrown to the wind. There are no uh, agreed-upon sexual norms in our society. Now, for understandable reasons, which we'll see in a moment, but the net effect is that we are working without a clear understanding of what to do about, how to handle, how to instruct our young people about our sexuality. The subtitle of the project is The Wisdom of Religion Without the Crazy, because for centuries religion has worked as an accumulating body of wisdom, and true of sexuality as well. The religion has become the place where we have accumulated a rich understanding about human sexuality. But unfortunately, religion also, and particularly Western Christianity, has accumulated some crazy. We looked last week at our dirty sex instincts and how they damage us and how they blunt our effectiveness in conveying our wisdom. But beneath that crazy, there really is a richness of wisdom. And my purpose for the project has been to gather all that wisdom into one place for us so that we can use it as a discussion point, so that we can begin to filter it through our own lives and our own understandings, and so we can hold it up as a comparison point for how to look at the things both positive and negative that we have experienced in our own sexuality. And so my hope is that you'll listen to the project. Uh, listen to the podcast. Uh, iTunes only goes back 10 episodes, so if you've missed, you'd have to go to the website to listen to the ones, but you can do that on your mobile phone, and you can be listening as you're driving if you'd like to. So this week, I want to talk about the problem that I alluded to last week, and I want to talk about how we really are going to need one another. We are going to need one another, and we're going to need access to the accumulated wisdom of religion to help us navigate this moment of upheaval. Now, I will mention the word sex or sexuality quite a bit, and just because we've been so trained, our brains will automatically go to eroticism. 
But I want you to remember the definition we talked about last week. The full complement of those five Greek words that look at a, look to describe a developmental process that we go through over a lifetime of which only a supporting player is eroticism. And the whole part is what we're talking about it. So watch where your head goes because that's what I'm talking about, not that. So we <coughs> um, have, we human beings, for about 10,000 years now, lived uh, in agricultural societies. And for all of that time, we developed a way of thinking about the practice of sexuality and monogamy and how we form pair bonds. And we captured a tremendous amount of understanding about humanity with a simple rule of thumb. So here is this body of understanding this body of uh, awakened enlightenment into how human sexuality works. And then there's a rule of thumb that guides us to this wisdom. And the rule of thumb was this. Don't have sex until you're ready to settle down and marry. And that worked in, an agriculture, in agricultural societies for all of those centuries. It captured the wisdom effectively. Now, the rule distilled out and pointed us toward the experience of all of those depths of wisdom. And you can hear about these in detail in the podcast, but a few of the things is the difference between masculine and feminine sexuality and making sure that we honor both. Somehow the rule of thumb captured that. There is a timing at which uh, sexuality unfolds so that there's room for the psychological and the emotional and the relational components that take time to unfold in a proper way. And somehow the rule of thumb captured that wisdom. There is uh, a rule of timing in our sexual relationships that uh, defer the kinds of experiences that we yearn for until the time is right. There is a religious word, chastity, that captures that. Now, when we think of chastity, we think of a religious prudery or we think of this God-awful device with a lock on it, and we think uh, those kinds of things. That is not at all what chastity means. Chastity means experiencing the right kind of experiences at the right time, at the moment when it is healthful and helpful. So we experience the right thing and we experience it at the right time. And there's this tremendous body of wisdom. And somehow the rule of thumb captured that wisdom as well. Now most of people, most people for all of the time that we lived underneath that rule had no idea about the body of wisdom that undergirded it. We just knew what the rule was. Don't have sex until you're ready to settle down and get married. And the rule helped us helped us find our way into healthy, helpful sexuality. Rooted in a rich understanding, this rule saved a lot of people from a great deal of pain. And it helped many couples create deep psychological, emotional, relational bonds, bonds that held them through the ups and the downs of making love, love that lasts for a lifetime. But today, very few honor the ancient rule of thumb. Again, it really was an effective rule. It really was easy to teach and easy to transmit from generation to generation, which is kind of what makes a rule a rule, is its easy transmittability. It takes the wisdom of previous generations and transmits it to the next. It was great at that. It was a good rule of thumb. But again, very few abide by the rule any longer. Studies are showing us that not even religious people, people who assent to the rule, who agree to the rule, are following the rule in very large numbers. So why? If it was so helpful for so long, for so much of human history, why do so few honor it? 
And the problem comes with this rapid change we are undergoing as a society, especially how change is being uh, foisted upon us by technology. Technology is changing us. It is changing our birth rates. It's changing how we have children. It's changing when we have children. And for today, the thing I want to point out is how technology has changed how we work. For 10,000 years, when we lived in those agrarian societies, income-earning work demanded physical strength. Then for another 200 years or so after that, when we lived in industrial societies, the same thing was true. Income-earning work demanded physical strength, particularly upper body physical strength. And so that had a lot to do with how we stratified our gender roles in society, and it had a lot to do with how we practiced our sexuality. I explore a lot of that in the podcast, but not today. Now that we don't any longer live in a world where work is, demands physical strength or upper body strength, we can see how profoundly that affected our sexual roles. Because it turns out that physical work, being so much less complex than information age mental work, is less demanding in its preparation. Now that we do most of our work with keyboards and with robots, work has become more an intellectual endeavor than it has become a physical one. And so now income earning work has become the domain of both genders, but that's part of it. But the complexity of work has profoundly changed how much it takes to get ready to enter society. Because mental work is more complex than physical work, there is significantly more preparation for our young people to be able to contribute to enter into society. When work was physical, all a young person needed to be ready ready was the ability to plow a field or to raise a child, which they could do very early in their lives. But today, it is difficult to pay rent or buy groceries or support children without a college degree or sometimes a master's degree or the preparation of a business that gets started that takes time to establish. And so consequently, young people are entering society more and more uh, at a later stage. Recently, the U.S. Congress passed a health law uh, that said that children could stay on their parents' uh, insurance until they were 26 years old, which was an acknowledgement by our society that young people are not really ready to contribute to society until their mid or even their late 20s. Well, the rule of thumb that so accurately captured the wisdom of our human sexuality was predicated on there being a relatively short period of time between reaching sexual maturity and being ready to settle down and get married. But today, that doesn't happen. Today, the average woman doesn't marry until she's 27, and the average man doesn't marry until he's 29. And at the same time that the marriages are being delayed later, uh, puberty is happening earlier. And again, as we mentioned last week, I don't know whether that has to do with chemicals or the environment or the uh, kind of rampant sexuality that we expose young people to. Whatever the reason, we're entering puberty earlier, we're marrying later. So now the time period is closer to 15 years than it was to the five years that it used to be in an earlier time. And that timetable kind of works against the design of our humanity. We're designed with a deep, compelling drive to pass our genes on to the next generation. 
And it is a powerful, gripping drive. And the old rule of thumb is not turning out to be strong enough to stand up against this biological imperative, at least not for 15 years. And so our society has, by and large, abandoned the traditional rule. And when we abandon the rule associated with religion as it was, we have also tended to abandon the wisdom along with it. We've also tended to abandon all of the understanding that was a rich layer beneath the rule of thumb. When the rule went, so did the wisdom. It's not paid attention to today. One example is for years up until just the last decade or so, uh, under this new social experiment of no-norm sexuality, the age at which young people begin having sex has increasingly got younger and younger and younger and younger, which turns out isn't particularly healthy for uh, pair bonds that last. 71% of kids uh, are sexually active by the time they turn 18, according to the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So we send our kids off to college with as much sexual energy as they are ever going to have in their lives. We house them down the hall from one another. And for the first time in their lives, we unschedule their time and we unsupervise their time. We tell them how to prevent unwanted pregnancies and unwanted STDs. And if they grew up in a religious household, our preparation for that is to say, okay, sweetie, don't do it. And that isn't working. Now, youth groups and college groups are trying to create supporting structures to help young people in their efforts to abstain from sex, but stripped down, we are sending our young people a relatively stark message. It says this when they go off to college, if you have waited this long, which 71% of them have not, if you have waited this long, we'd like you to keep waiting. We'd like you to wait four more years, and then we'd like you to wait six more years after that. Uh, Now, again, we say it much more supportively than that, and we include God in our conversation and a good dose of guilt or shame in the process, but boiled down, that's in essence what the traditional rule is saying. And we live in a profoundly different society than we did when that traditional rule was formulated. And now that rule is working directly at odds with biology. It is working at odds with the survival drive to pass our genes on to the next generation. Now, a few individuals are able to abide the traditional norm, but as a species, it's, pretty, it's a pretty biologically unten- untenable position. So that puts we religious folk in a pickle because here we have this rich body of wisdom and a rule of thumb that we have used for generation after generation to apply that wisdom, a rule in which we are deeply invested, and for good reason, because it really worked for a long time. But now it doesn't. And now people are throwing out the rule. Even religious children are throwing out the rule. And the wisdom that was designed to help us access all of the wisdom about human sexuality is no longer functioning the way that it once did. Now again, I cannot overestimate how well the, work, the rule worked and how it worked for so long. It really did capture the wisdom of human sexuality very, very well. But again, that rule was hammered out over the thousands of years in an environment that increasingly does not exist. And so now the rule is failing our kids as they try to make it work in 
brand new in historical terms, in brand new environment. Because this social experiment, this no-norm sexuality, is something that we've only been doing for a very short part of our human history. And so, the old rule is failing our young people as they try and grapple with the 15-year problem. Now, one of the things that you'll see, you'll hear me explore in the podcast is the Wild West of sex, which is what we call the no-norm sexuality, that is also failing our young people. The no-norm sexuality that we are practicing is a deeply destructive force in our society. So neither of them is working. And so history has handed religion a dilemma. Even though our traditional rule helped young people integrate sexual wisdom for a thousand years, thousands of years, in our new world, we require new rules. Now, in the last uh, lesson, some people objected to the word rules because we hear that with a dose of guilt and shame and ought and a long pointing, pointing finger. And I want to come to the defense of rules. Uh, in everyday life, families and communities and young people need rules of thumb because parenting and teaching is demanding. Feeding and loving and educating and helping with homework, these things are demanding. And there isn't a lot of bandwidth left over to explore the depths of the human condition. And to then, having thus explored, to then begin to create rules of thumb that can apply that wisdom, that is a very demanding process. We are in a generation of, in which that is being required of us. We have to do that. But for most generations, when our rules and our context fit one another, rules are very convenient ways for people to be transmitted the experience and wisdom of previous generations. Here's the thing great-great-grandma learned, do this. And here's the thing that great-grandma learned, do this. And that grandma learned, and that mom learned, and now I'm going to teach you. And that's a powerful way for wisdom to be transmitted in human societies. The only time it's a problem is when there's a disconnect like there is in moments in history like ours. Rules are good. This one was a great rule. The only thing is our world has gone and changed. And few families have the bandwidth to engage a full exploration of the human condition or to grapple with the ancient concepts that I explore in the podcast what we need are simple, easy to follow, easy to transmit, easy to teach, functional, working rules of thumb to help us access the ancient wisdom. So this is a tough generation to live in because we don't have them. Our society is ignoring the ancient wisdom about human sexuality and the old rule of thumb that helped us access it isn't working for us. So yes, it's a tough generation to live in because it falls to us now to be the generation that hammers out new rules of thumb. The ancient wisdom hasn't changed. The nature of human sexuality hasn't changed. The way that our minds and the way that our bodies work haven't changed. The psychological and emotional and relational dynamics that are necessary to make love last for a lifetime, those haven't changed. But the easy to remember Easy to teach, easy to enforce, rules of thumb like don't have sex until you're ready to settle down and marry. That rule isn't helping as much as it did in the past. And so now we are given by history the mandate to create new rules. Now we will. 
If we don't burn the planet up first, history indicates that we will figure this out. If, if, if enough time goes by, we'll get this right, because we do. We tend to swing through history like pendulums, and we are way off on a pendulum swing over here now. We will come back, and we will find our way. But it won't happen this year, and it probably, if history is any indicator, won't happen this century. The social experiment that we've undertaken, practicing our sexuality without any norms, has only been going on for a long time, in historical terms, in the blink of an eye. And it takes centuries to hammer out effective norms like the old one that we had. So it's unlikely that we're going to have any new norms during our lifetime or even our children's lifetime. And so consequently, the easy-to-transmit rules that we can just teach our kids are going to elude us in our lifetimes. So consequently, for now, we are at the beginning stages of figuring out how to integrate the ancient wisdom into this new social structure, this new technological structure, this new relational structure that society has put upon us. So how do we integrate the ancient wisdom into a set of rules that will work in the society we now live in? Now, it appears that, some, that the millennials are already beginning to make some good progress. Uh, you know, I haven't heard, somebody told me in one lesson afterwards that there's a lot of bad talking about the millennial generation. I, I haven't read any of that stuff. Everything I read about the millennials is that they are kind of like leaps and bounds ahead of any generation that came before them. And one of the things that's working well for them is how they're thinking about sexuality. They begin to integrate some norms. One of the first things that's happening is they're starting to have sex later, realizing that by sex I mean they're starting to have erotic sex. They're getting involved in, they're getting into bed with each other much later in the process. The other thing is they're not dating uh, paired up. They're group dating and they're learning to take the social pressure off to give them time to explore the third thing, which is that they are exploring deeply the dynamics that make for healthy relationships. They're exploring deeply how do you make relationships work. Now, for good reason, because they're looking back and they're saying, you do not know how to do this. I've got to figure out how to make this work. And so there's a good chance that we are already in this self-corrective pendulum swing moment in history. But still, for our lifetimes, we're still going to be in a historical moment of great flux, which is why last week I suggested that we need to learn how to explore sexuality in a safe way in the context of communities, in the community of people who are learning together what the ancient wisdom has to teach us, in a community of people who are studying together the social upheaval that we're undergoing, and a community of people who are hammering out together how to apply the former in the latter. And so, in the podcast, I did an episode on telling our sexual stories. Before I wrote the episode, I went and talked with some people, and their first response was, What? <laughs> and so, I started thinking in terms of, what do we know as a community? Now, one of the things that we know in community is how to talk about our lives in a very self-disclosing way. So the prayer practice that we talked about the year before last, and I've been alluding to this year, uh, the, the prayer of self-awareness and self-disclosure, is an ideal context for the exploration of self-awareness. And to be able to do that in the area of our sexuality, what has happened in my life? Why did it happen? What were the drivers? What was pushing? Where, where did I go? Why did I go there? And to do that in the context of sexuality is a very spiritual experience. Self-awareness and self-disclosure 
we said it is a way to distill out the prayer of confession. How do we practice that? Well, how do we tell our sexual stories? Well, one of the things that we do is we look at the wisdom that I've kind of laid out in the podcast. What do we think about masculine and feminine sexuality? How do we live in a way that honors both? How do we think about the timing that allows for these kind of relationships? What are the hurrying factors that push us faster than we are psychologically, emotionally ready to go? What about the the timing of the appropriateness of certain experiences? Now, look at the wisdom and then look at my life as an overlay and where did I get it right and where did I align with it? Where did I miss it? The exploration of that is profoundly helpful for us. And we've created enough environments here in our community to be able to talk about that kind of stuff stuff safely. We can talk about that in our Enneagram groups. We can talk about that in our life story groups. We can talk about that when we get together and practice the prayer of self-awareness and self-disclosure. These are things that we can do. And when we see where we have deviated from wisdom... We then begin to gain wisdom, and we have something to offer to our young people. When we see where we have aligned with ancient wisdom, we can see what has accrued to us because we've aligned with the wisdom, and we have something to offer to our young people. And so I've suggested in the podcast that we have a space here in our community to be able to do that, to have these kinds of communal discussions. I've also suggested that we gather as groups of parents to get ready to talk to our young people. And to ask one another, how are you talking to your kids? And what are you saying about your story? How are you telling what you have learned? Because we have already learned how to create spaces of high confidentiality. How great would that be for parents to be able to get together and talk about how we're going to talk to our young people? In fact, one of the homework assignments that Angie is considering for our teens is to ask them to ask their folks to tell them part of their sexual story. I thought, that's just great when I heard that. I thought, that's just going to freak parents out. And I am so glad that she's doing that. So get yourself ready. <laughs> if you've got one of the teens in this class, think about something you've learned. Think, think about some story that you have to tell. Now the thing about stories is it's one of the primary ways that we human beings learn from one another. It's one of the primary ways that we transmis- transmit wisdom to each other. We, uh, this project frames a series of important topics and then helps us explore the wisdom then look at our life and then take those two and weave together a story about what I have learned that has gone well, what I have learned that has not gone well. So that's why I did the project, was to gather these old truths into one place to help us reflect on them. And then to be able to go over them in light of our own sexual experiences. Because given the society that we grew up in, their odds are you didn't align with the, with the ancient wisdom. Odds are that the way that you lived your life was completely deviated from that. And so consequently, most of us have stories that we can tell that include some pain in them. And so that doesn't disqualify us from being able to talk to young people. It's a way of saying what they already know. Sorry, kids, we screwed it up. However, here's something that I've learned since then. And so we can talk about our highs and we can talk about our lows. And so I've encouraged us to tell our stories. Again, I really hope you listen to the podcast because it will give you some framework for what I've just said. But again, stories are powerful ways that we learn from one another, and stories don't have to be positive to be told to our young people. So we don't live in a world where we can teach our kids rules that we were taught when we were their age. We live in a world where there is such rapid change going on that it is easy for us just to avoid the topic altogether. It's easy for us to just kind of turn our head and wish we didn't have to. Or we just come in ill-prepared and uninformed by what 
ancient wisdom even has to offer. And ill-prepared, we just try our best to you know, keep him from as much harm as we can. But really, we can do better by taking the time. I, I think one of the roles that I get to have in the community is to explore this stuff together because, goodness sakes, you don't have two years to do this. You've got kids you've got to raise. And so to create the context for these kinds of discussions so that we can be informed what the wisdom has to offer, then we can give something to our children that will be very, very helpful. <clears throat> we have to develop new rules. Rules that access the way human sexuality really works. Now, the only part of the project, I said last week, that I think might ruffle feathers is this. Living in this time of flux requires seminal change, the kind of change that goes to the bedrock of our thinking. And it's not just changing style, it's actually changing substance. Now, the accumulation of deep wisdom about human sexuality, that doesn't change. The deep sexual nature within us, we can't change that. But the rules are in free fall during our lifetimes. And if we're going to have rules that capture wisdom, that help us transmit from generation to generation, seismic change is upon us, and that stresses folks. So in the podcast, again, I stress the importance of community, how important it is at historical moments like this to have one another because we need to put our minds together to work on the problem. There is no immediate answer on the horizon. Once we realize that we have to figure out this ourselves, we really need each other and we need good writers and we need good thinkers and we need anybody who is exploring human sexuality with a perspective bigger than just trying to sell stuff. We need to explore those people who are thinking about human sexuality and make a case for doing something that is costly but has a long-term return. In episode 30, which is you know like second to last episode, I discussed some writers who are shaping what those rules of thumb might look like in years to come. One of them was the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1970. Uh, the other was Bishop John Shelby Spong. He's down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they suggest that we break marriage into its three component levels of commitment. The first level of commitment is, uh, and each one is associated with vows that are taken. And those vows are taken when we enter into uh, a committed sexual relationship before we have children. And these vows carry this much gravity. And then there's another set of vows to be taken that are much higher, much more demanding when we decide that we are going to have children. Because these vows are significant, more demanding because our children need it. And we cannot afford to have the damage that we do to our children today by divorce because parents need uh, two uh, parents and they need the financial stability and the emotional stability. And then the third set of vows we take when the last child leaves when we begin to share our lives intimately and closely one with another for the joy of companionship in the last journey of our lives. Now in the, in the podcast, I make a strong case for having all three of those vows with the same person. But it may be that what life looks like in the future doesn't have that same uh, expectation. But again, nobody can be sure how those rules of thumb are going to unfold because hammering them out is what we have to do during our lifetime. And so we really need each other. We need to be able to talk about sexuality. 
We cannot afford to be uh, imprisoned by the mums the word. This is impolite. We can't afford to not be talking about this stuff because we have to know. We have to figure it out. We have to work together to figure out how to apply the wisdom in this new context that we and our children live in. We need to be sharing the journey together. We need to be studious together. We need to be self-aware and self-disclosing together. We need to be storytellers together. Now, next week, I want to go back to the lesson on Amos that I did before we had these interruptions. And you're going to hear me say that it will not do for us to become a liberal church. And it will not do for us to become a conservative church. Because if we do, we're going to miss out either way on two-thirds of human morality. Because it turns out that liberals have a strong emphasis in, in some parts of human morality. And conservatives have strong emphasis on other parts of human morality. And if we don't work together, if we just exclude one group, then we're going to miss out on the wisdom of human morality. But to be able to access that wisdom... We have to learn to speak to one another across the gulf, across the divides that now hamper us as a society. We have to learn to talk as liberals to conservatives and as conservatives to liberals, which means we have to learn to talk about things that people don't talk about. And one of the things that people don't talk about is sex. We have to learn to talk about sex. We have to learn to talk about sexuality. We have to learn to talk about the wisdom and how it applies. We have to understand the full complement of sexuality, that it isn't just about eroticism. We have to understand that and be able to apply that in the context of our conversations as we are pursuing a wisdom and an understanding that we need. We have to be able to do that about politics, and we have to do about that differing views of religion and differing views on race and differing views of sexuality because not discussing the hard topics will kill us. If we don't learn to hear one another across the gulfs of divides that divide us, it will kill us. And nowhere is better to start talking about this than learning how to talk about the ancient sexual wisdom together and to think about this stuff and to study this stuff and to figure out how we're going to talk to our kids about applying the ancient wisdom to the 15-year problem. So please do listen to the podcast and think about the concepts and talk about it with your people. Talk about it within our community. Post ideas or thoughts or questions on the Facebook group. Weave your sexual story into the groups where you're telling your stories. Compare your experience with the ancient principles and talk about what went well and what didn't go well. And let's become a community that normalizes talking about the full wisdom around human sexuality because if we don't, it's going to kill us. Let's do that with our families and with our uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandpas. And let's do that in our youth group and let's do that in our church community. A whole sexuality, Lord, may that be so in us and may it be so among us. Amen.